I see you've made it to the archives. If you're looking for more episodes, well, check out our Patreon feed. We've got plenty of extra interviews, plus our group calls and add-on episodes where we split some episodes into two parts because they're so long and we dive in more details with our guests. So check out the Patreon feed if you get a chance and are looking for more episodes. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com and look for the Patreon button at the top. We were running out of time. We were running out of socks. We were running out of packaging. We were running out of everything. I called my business partner at that time and I said, now we did it. We are young internet millionaires. (laughs) Because I think a weekly newsletter for socks is annoying. (laughs) I think we all get enough newsletters, right? Exactly. glad to have you on. You're our first, I believe, international entrepreneur. That must be exciting. (laughs) Why don't you tell us where you live and kind of what you're doing today? Okay. Well, actually, I live in Zurich, Switzerland, in the middle of the heart of Europe. And I'm about to finish my day. It's a real hot summer day. And I think after the call, I'll go home to my kids. Gotcha. And how many kids do you have? There are two of them. There's a girl which turns five in a couple of weeks and a three and a half year old boy. So are you from there and uh, do you have a wife there or how does that work? Well, I grew up in Switzerland. I lived in several places. I lived in Paris, London, Toronto, and now I ended up in Zurich. I grew up in Switzerland. It's a funny country. You have uh, four languages and I grew up between the French and the German speaking part and now I live in, in Zurich, which is a German speaking part. But it's the biggest city and actually became quite famous. For example, Google has the biggest operation outside the US here in Zurich as well. And so what do you do today and what company do you run? Um, I run a company called BlackSocks.com. We started 18 years ago and it's all about black socks. We don't sell socks in a traditional way. We have, we invented what we call Sockscription, which is basically a subscription for socks. And we came up with this idea in the mid 90s. And at that time, we didn't have a clue how to execute it. And all of a sudden, internet arrived. So we said, let's try it out. And nowadays, I live on socks. And then how did you get into it? Well, everything started with a rather embarrassing moment. After business school, I used to work as a business consultant. And there, my boss invited me to a meeting with Japanese customers. And business meeting went very well. Afterwards, we were invited to a tea ceremony. And there, I had to take off my shoes. And what happened there, when people could tell that the two socks I was wearing, they didn't have the same family background. And they were not in the same life stage. So one was grayish with a little hole. And the other was all black. And that was rather embarrassing for me. It was one of the youngest in there and this made me think about the interface between men and socks and I realized that both of them are rather lazy so they have a hard time to find together and then I said well a subscription will be the best especially for me and nobody did that so in 1908 we decided we're going to try it out and that was rather early for an e-commerce platform and at that time we were a brand which was not known at all and um, we never sold one pair of socks we didn't had one single customer. We had a new distribution model with the subscription. So we were really early and it was quite hard, but we tried it out and it works. And where did you say you were again when you took off your shoes? And could you go in detail on that story? Well, actually, there was, we had Japanese customers 
in Zurich. So they were here and afterwards they invited us to a tea ceremony. That's a traditional Japanese ceremony, which they do for special occasions. But it was here in Zurich. And so I guess going back from 18 years ago, usually we try to take it back in, I guess, kind of out of high school and or college. Can you tell us about your background leading up to the Black Sox? I studied business and economics in Switzerland and France. And afterwards, I worked as a business consultant, was a consultant firm, which is a marketing consultant. My biggest client was a McDonald's at that time. So I learned a lot about multiplying, about procedures, about systematics. And then after a while, I was rather tired about it. Then I went more into PR and public affairs. Then I was in charge for a, a couple of IPOs, for the communication for the IPOs. And uh, the last one I did was the, for the former national telecommunication company. We brought that to the stock exchange and there we were talking about the future of internet, the future of telecommunication. And that brought me to the subject of uh, e-commerce. And whenever they were, the IPO was over, I had enough time to think about those things. And the old idea with the subscription came back. So I decided to try it out. I didn't have a clue about textiles. So I remembered an old friend from high school, which had an idea of uh, clothes and fashion and so i asked if he wants to become my partner for this and his answer was i already lost a lot of money with sillier ideas so we started together and after five years he wanted to quit the company so i did the management buyout and ever since it's just me myself and i and i guess as far making the socks could you go a little bit more into detail of when you actually started it i mean you told us the story behind it but like the steps that you had to take in order to go ahead and start that company we had to put on a web page we need to have a marketing idea we need to have a decent web page so we developed all that and um, it all started to find a supplier and we didn't want to have a small one which cannot grow with us we didn't want to have a too big one because otherwise it will not produce for us so we had like 10 different ones and then we started test wearing that was a time on which i changed my sock about five times a day and then we were washing overnight and trying to do, to see how it works because the idea was always to have a very good product that people like and usually men if they like something they want more of the same and so that was the idea and that's the idea which works but 80 percent of the subscribers would stick with us so they get their socks on a regular basis this makes my business much more planable. I'm not starting and 1st of January with zero, when you know um, we're going to renew 80% of the subscriptions. And the other thing is it gives me a lot of freedom. I can work when I want, from where I want, and I hardly ever see a customer. So therefore, this was our goal at the beginning and it seems to work. And so do you mainly run it from like your house today or do you have your offices and other people who work for you or how's that go? We are a team of seven people and we outsource most of the handwork. So we don't ship by our own. We don't produce by our own. We not we do webmastering by our own, but we don't develop technical things by our own. So we have a lot more people working for us than working at us. But I have an office uh, since the beginning. I think that makes sense. It gives me more structure in the day. I think it's a good thing to leave the house in the morning, come home, and I cannot work 24 hours. So I need this. And nowadays we do ship to 127 countries. We sold a couple of millions of socks. We do underwear as well and shirts. So we do everything for men, but nothing for women. As far as finding those first socks, did you have to go to a manufacturer, get them made, or are you getting them from somebody else and then upselling them? 
We started with a factory close to Milano in Italy, and there we, they produced for us a product which they only produced for us, but the basic product was similar to one they had for somebody else. And when we first arrived, they didn't want to produce small quantities, so we told them, listen guys, we're going to do a test market, but that wasn't true. Uh, we wanted to start with small quantities. And so they produced for the test market the burst socks. Little by little, it became more. And nowadays, they do about one third of their sales through us. Now we work together for almost 19 years. We became like friends. We depend on them up to a certain point. They depend on us. And nowadays, we, we develop new products together. We have not all products from them, but most of them. And why did you choose a factory in Milan? Well, I think proximity is very important. When we first launched men's underwear, I said, well, now I'm very clever. I go to India. And I think it was rather hard for us because the mentality is completely different. And if I take everything together, all the short-term travel we had to do in business class, sleeping in expensive hotels, flying the goods to Europe, if I calculate all this together, it would have been cheaper not going to India. So therefore, for the socks, we said we need to do what we call nearshoring, that we have produced which accessible within one day, back and forth, where, where we can resolve problems. Somebody who has pretty much the same mentality, the same goals, the same values. And so I think we need to do something which is rather close. And Milano from Zurich is about 300 miles, so it's not very far. We can easily drive there by car in the morning and drive back home in the evening. And the Italians, they have a big heritage of producing clothes in a high quality level. And the other thing is we know that we're going to get the goods. The thing with the subscription, I often sell socks which I don't have on stock. And so therefore, I need a partner which I can rely on. Otherwise, we will sell something and then we cannot deliver to the customers and that will be the worst. And did you speak Italian? And how were you able to find that particular factory? Actually, that did my former business partner. He had a network of people, now a couple of companies. He went to exhibitions and then he found this company and his mother was Italian, so he was bilingual. I only speak English, French and German, but these guys, they speak English as well. And so we're able to communicate without the problem. And I think now we do all the shirt and underwear we do in, um, in Turkey, which is already a little in terms of culture. It's a different story. But there we manage since we produce close to Istanbul and not close to Syria, which is another story again. But um, I think we need to have partners uh, when we grow, for example. We had years in which we made uh, 50, 60% more than the year before. Then you need to have partners which you can rely on, where you can communicate fast and people who, are, who speak the same language, not language in terms of language, but the same mentality. And this really very well with the Italians. I really wanted to like have a small membership where I can have a community because long term, that's going to help everybody else out more. In all honesty, I feel like you could even charge more, to be honest. I would have spent a lot more. Don't charge me more now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling you. I would have spent a lot more. Some of these meetup groups that I go to, they charge like $50 a swing and and there's not even a lunch or anything provided. Just a one-time meetup where this is, you know, a monthly thing with a lot of benefits and a lot of great connections. I mean, for someone like myself, I feel like if I met one person over the next year, you know, it brought me a tremendous amount of value. And I think you're selling it too cheap almost. (laughs) I mean, in all honesty. Mary said that she had the whole you know thing that sparked this conversation is I guess she had a marketing company on and now they're helping her. They got her in Asbury Park Press, which is a local paper here, but she did like over $15,000 in business just off of them getting her in that article. And they've also gotten her in a ton of other things. 
I mean, she said, you know, listen, it was one phone call for $15 a month. It already brought me over $15,000 worth of gross return. I mean, that's just tremendous value in my opinion. If I can even get a fraction of value like that out of any of these calls, I mean, it would be worth $100 a month to me at this point, you know? Well, could you tell us a little bit of the difference between working in Turkey versus Italy? For you said most of the people that I talk to, if they do manufacturing, they're doing it in the U.S. or they're doing it in China. So we don't get to really hear about European manufacturing. Well, actually, what happened in Europe is that in the heart of Europe, it became much too expensive to produce. So first it went south to Italy, to Portugal, to all these countries. Then it went east. And now it goes to North Africa, Turkey and these countries. And Italy has a long heritage. They do still produce. And producing socks, these are knitting machines, which don't have a huge part of handwork. So it's really machine are producing the socks and the hand is just doing the finishing and the packing. So that's fine. That produces in Central Europe. But when it comes to shirts or underwear, there you have to cut. There's much more handwork involved. So therefore, labor costs are important. And what happened is that a lot of Turks, they grew up in Germany, France, England. So they have both the mentality of both countries. Their fathers were Turkish. They grew up in Europe. And when they had economic boom in the early or the late 90s, they went back and they said, well, I'm going to become an entrepreneur. And these companies, they're usually in terms of mentality, they know both worlds, you know, the Islamic world down there, but they also know the European world and it's quite easy to work together with them. But India, there was a completely other story because these guys, usually they only produce cheap and they produce huge quantities for a little money. And we do usually the opposite. We have uh, small quantities, but we produce the same thing again and again and again. And when I want to reorder India, they didn't remember what they produced three months ago. So I had to send them the things they produced before and then they copied it. This is another way of producing. But I think Turkey is a rather big country and you have the European part close to Istanbul, to the capital. There, in terms of mentality, it's rather Western. But if you go to the desert, to the countryside, then it becomes like a third world. And we produce close to the capital. So we do have access to these people. They speak English, so we can go there, we communicate, and it's not like producing in India or whatever. And so did you actually produce in India for a little while? We produced uh, two years. We produced underwear down there and we had a lot of problems. Yes. So we decided not to do that anymore. Right. So now it's just based in Turkey in Italy? Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Well, kind of going back to when you did start the company, how much money did you have to put down in order to get started? And how were you able to find your first customer? Could you give us a story on finding that actual first customer? What happened at that time, probably not many people remember. In the late 90s, people had what they called uh, palm pops, palm pilots, those first electronic agendas. And so we copied from all of our friends the contacts from the palm pilots together. And we did a mailing to about 2,000 people. And that was the first marketing activity we ever did. And out of that, we had some orders, but it was definitely not enough. Then we launched it through PR. And this helps us a lot. At the very beginning, people said, are you kidding me? You do a subscription for socks via internet. At that time, nobody bought uh, clothes on the web. At that time, e-commerce was basically books, flight tickets, or uh, software, but not fashion or not textile. Since the concept is so simple, this gave us a lot of visibility. And so little by little, people came in. And what was crucial for us all the time was that people have a good experience and talk about it. Word of mouth was very important as well. It still is. Um, happy customers bring new customers in. So that's also the reason why 
everything has something to do directly with the customers we do by our own. For example, we do have out of seven people taking care about customer service. And we did last month, we sent out more than 10,000 letters, which were written by a robo, but by hand with ink to 10,000 people. So we take it personally. We try to do it as personal as possible. And this works really well. Well, it's funny that you say that because actually I use a similar type of method for my business. Is I used I downloaded a font or had to pay for one. I think it was on V letter. The letter I don't know if you use that, and then printed it off and would send those as opportunities to potential clients. And then yeah. I think it's handwritten. I never said it wasn't handwritten because writing thousands of handwritten letters, you only have so much time, right? But of course, uh, if you get the same point across, did you use a similar type software or what? Well, actually, this startup in Berlin, they developed a robo. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of software they have, but they really write letter by letter with a pen and then it's ink. And they even did the envelopes, the address and everything was written by hand or it looks like by hand. And if you make it wet, it's like ink, it, it goes away. This was very well done, but it's not done by hand, but it looks like. We combined that together with all the data we have from our customers. So the letter was something like you ordered first and that date, and then you ordered again. And now all of a sudden you haven't ordered. So it was a reactivation activity, which worked very well because it was personal. And everybody had the impression that somebody was sitting there and writing him a letter. And we got a lot of handwritten letter backs. <laughs> Would you mind sharing with us what the name was so other people who might have different types of companies could look into something similar to it? Yes, of course. The company is called uh, Wunderpen. It's W-U-N-D-E-R-Pen.com. And they have this machine which produces uh, personal letters. <laughs> gotcha. I think you have to use Google Translate for most of us who can't speak. Where are they from? Germany. Okay, yeah. Germany. Yeah. So it's written, but yeah, no, I'm looking at it right now. And yeah, it's definitely got, they do a good job. I think anything like that, it's just different, right? So I think marketing 101 is just be a little bit different. And something like that, I think helps a lot. So obviously that's a good idea and so when we're talking about you doing socks i mean after doing socks originally did you think about i know you said today you do underwear and i'm not sure what else but were you thinking about doing any other products because yeah you do seem really early as far as being the first subscription based company i've heard of i think with the first subscription company we were before netflix at that time when we launched netflix still had a video on demand they didn't have flat rates and so i think the real subscription on the web one of the first or the first i don't know If we launch new products, there are two rules. One is the the potential needs to be big enough that it makes sense. The other thing is we don't do fashion, only textiles. So we have basic products. We do have colorful socks. We do have uh, funky socks. We have uh, underwear. We have shirts, but we don't want to go into fashion because that's like another story. Um, Our customers are usually businessmen, which are time poor, money rich, and they want more of the same good quality stuff, but they don't want to shop around. So this helps a lot. And so whenever we see products which are good for those people, we're going to launch them. But I don't want female products because there I do have a new target group. I do have usually women send more back. Um, we have we have less than 1% returns. So men are really easier customers and we want to have synergies. And when I have a man customers which buy socks, then it's easy to sell underwear to him. And so we can increase share of wallet, which is what we basically want to do. Yeah. And I mean, was there ever a point in time where you did accidentally get into fashion and then you're like, hey, that, I realized that's not the way to do it? 
Now, actually, the first like eight years, it was the name was program. We only sold black socks, and little by little, we saw that on the market people are more casual. In the late late nineties, a lot of people had to wear a suit and a tie to go to work. Nowadays, it's uh, common anymore. It depends on the industry, but less and less people are wearing ties. So therefore, the whole whatever they wear, it became more casual. So they didn't want black socks only. They wanted to have a brown, blue, whatever. Then about three years ago, we started with uh, funky socks, which has a lot of colors. I think you have quite some companies doing that in the U.S. as well. That's a rather new trend. So this we need to do as well because we want to sell the socks. But still, I think that's not too fashion. And once in a while, you need to have something colorful, which is good for PR. I always do the comparison with the car industry. Whenever they have a car show, they show prototypes, which are not for sale. And we do it the other way. We do small series, which are for sale. So we have a small risk. And we did that also with a fun product we did back in 2012. We called it Smarter Socks. And Smarter Socks are socks with an RFID tag on it. And we did an RFID reader for the iPhone. So with smart socks, people could see how many times the socks are washed, how many times they were worn, when they were produced. For matching the socks, it was quite easy because you knew exactly which ones goes together. Therefore, we developed an app and it was a fun story. We sell them, we still sell them, but it is not a huge market potential, but it was exactly one of the showcase. And there we had a lot of PR all over the world. We even had to send it to the boardroom of Apple because they didn't believe that we were able to do that. And there was uh, one idea behind it, which helped us a lot. We didn't use the dock connector of the iPhone, but we only used Bluetooth. So we could connect an RFID reader with an iPhone, which worked well. And this year we or in May, we launched something similar to the dash button of Amazon. We realized that a lot of customers, the only time they think about socks is when they walk out of the shower and get dressed. And that in this moment, they don't have a device. So then they think socks and uh, we wanted to take advantage of this moment. So we launched what we call the more button. And the more button is a Wi-Fi connected uh, button. And if people press that twice, they get whatever they ordered before again. And now we have that since six, seven weeks and every day orders coming in through e-commerce without devices, just a round button about three inches wide, which people can, it's magnetic. So we could put it everywhere. We can stick it in your wardrobe or whatever. And then you get your socks when you need it. And those tiny little things, which are still the basic idea of interfacing socks and men, we're going to develop. Nowadays, I'm thinking about socks as a service. Everybody knows software as a service, that we don't sell the socks anymore, but that we lend them. I'm not quite sure if we're going to launch it next year, but that could be another idea that people don't want to own socks. They want to use them. And so we take care about the replacement and it's a monthly fee, which is basically a flat rate for socks. So yeah, I appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon. Yeah, thank you, man. I've been listening to your show for know, the last couple of years. I always listen to it like my workout. I like how you like really dive in and you're just asking like the typical questions like, okay, tell me more. What was the challenges? How'd you overcome it? Cool. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So why do you want to become a Patreon? I just, yeah, I just want to support you, man. Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people, the more members I can get. I didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it and it's such an amount that people, it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, you would finally check in once a month and still, you know, it's adding value. But I think just kind of like saying, hey, guys, it's only like, you know, it's only three cups of coffee. <laughs> 
And so with that button that you're talking about, the more button, is it synced with a different platform or did you have made by developer? How'd you get that? Actually, we developed it by our own and we had one advantage for the renewal process of subscription there we took, there we have a lot of experience and basically we could use this interface. So the button is basically only sending a signal from a customer and we have to identify it and then we can double check if he's still living on the same address. We do have the payment details and we do have the product preferences so we can initiate an order and afterwards it's the same procedure as an e-commerce order. We send out via email, email confirmation, then we send out the goods. So that was for us a little easier than for other companies which don't have this heritage of renewal processes, which we do have since we round with subscription for 18 years. You've been doing this company for 18 years. I mean, most entrepreneurs, I don't think they can even be in doing the same company for 18 years. So could you tell us about, I mean, have you ever had any times where you thought you were not going to make it or you're going to have to fold the company? What's been some difficult times during that? Well, we did had up and downs like every single company. I think the worst was back in 201. Then we had 10th of September. CNN, they had a format called .com and they did a portrait about us for about 10 minutes and I was sitting at night in front of my laptop and pushing the refresh button and the orders were coming in like hell. So I called my business partner at that time and I said, now we did it. We are young internet millionaires. And what happened next was we did that. We had all the technical infrastructure in the world trade. So next morning, we knew everybody knows what happened. And so we did have backups on another floor of the World Trade Center. So everything was gone. And the only thing we knew what was the last order to be shipped. And all those we haven't shipped, we had to cancel through the credit card companies. And we were offline for three weeks. And before we were up again, it was running. So the whole rush was gone. And we started from scratch again. These are things that can happen. So you're talking about 9-11, obviously. But yeah, on CNN, you were on literally the day before? Yes, night before. At 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock East Coast time. And it was uh, during 12 to 12 hours, we thought we now everything's going to change. But the only lost out, it's not that bad, but it was emotionally was really an up and down. We were so excited in the evening. Then next day, uh, like everybody else, it was a shock. So these are things which can happen as an entrepreneur. You have these up and downs. And I think as an entrepreneur, often I like to do things where it really becomes dangerous. For example, when we launched underwear, I bought so much underwear that I knew if I'm not able to sell it, that the company will collapse. And I was so much under pressure that I did everything to not make a mistake. And so it worked. And I did in my former life a lot of, let's say, freestyle sports like snowboarding, like a lot of off-piste snowboarding where it can be dangerous with avalanches or whatever. And I did quite some mountain bike downhill racing and there you have also this moment in which you only feel this very moment in which you are full speed and you know if you fell over you're gonna break whatever so this feeling as an entrepreneur to take a risk and then you would be in the middle of I like a lot and so therefore it's still fun <laughs> when did you do the underwear and buy that much I mean did you decide if you bought that much that you needed to do that for yourself in order to make sure you didn't go half-ass into it I wanted to prove to myself it will be a success. I didn't want it to do half. So I said, if I wanted it to be a success, I didn't want to be convinced that it works. So I bought a lot and then I had the, pr- the pressure to sell it. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's the way it works. To have enough pressure doesn't work all the time, but sometimes I need that. <laughs> 
Well, how about the business partner breakup? Just so we can understand, say if we have a business partner, how did that end up happening for you? And could you just go a little bit more into detail on that? I think having a business partner had the limited until you had stocks. The basic idea of stocks is you can easily sell it. So therefore, I think the whole structure was made that the owners can change. But the case was we had success, but we had so much to invest that we didn't make a lot of money at the very beginning. And so after five years, he had another company as well where he sells watches. And then he said, listen, I don't want to invest time in a business which doesn't bring him immediately money. I want to focus on my other business. And I said, fair enough. And then basically had only one problem together. He wanted much more for his shares that I was willing to pay. So then we had some negotiations and at the end of the day, we found a solution. And nowadays he's happy that I was the first who made really money with uh, Black Sox. And I'm now completely independent because it's my company. So today you are still 100% of it? I still have 100%, yeah. I guess you kind of talked about one of those highs during your company, I mean, on September 10th, and obviously what happened on September 11th, knocking you out. What are some of the other highs that you had during this point, during the 18 years? In 2005, for example, we got a phone call from a customer experience council at that time, and they said we were nominated for a prize for customer experience. If I want to take part of it, I said, yes. How much is it? They said, it's free. So I didn't have the clue, and I had to answer a couple of questions. On the phone. Two weeks later, the same person called me again and said, listen, now you're from the long list on the short list. Are you willing to come to New York for the price giving ceremony? I said, of course, but I didn't thought that I will fly to New York for a dinner. And 10 days later, Forbes magazine is calling me. They wanted to make an interview in the middle of the night. So I gave this interview and realized, okay, this is something bigger than I thought. And I did some research and realized, well, this is a big thing. So we won in the category small companies up to 100 million sales. Actually, before Flickr, Flickr was second one for a company with good customer experience. The middle category up to 1 billion was JetBlue and the big company was Google. So we had a nice prize giving ceremony in the Rainbow Room of the Rockefeller Center. And what happened there, we had so much PR around that we had a growth of 60% in this year. And we were running out of time. We were running out of socks. We were running out of packaging. We were running out of everything. And that was uh, very intense. And I think if we would have had more capacity done even much more but that's what we could do and it was brought the company on another level and the story behind was one of our customers had a very good experience with us and so this is great and he nominated us so we went through the whole charging process and then finally got the prize i tell my employees every day that we never know who's calling we know how much this word of mouth thing can bring this was word of mouth implied by the prize we got plus by the media and i think these stories which are very intense which are very good to go back and forth and it really helped the company a lot this was when you got nominated for that award was 2005 yes yes so it was for great customer experience. I mean, how did you get that great customer experience? Was it on, or did you purposely make sure that people in your company were giving that? If so, how so? Actually, the funny thing is we started tagging customers and data and all these kind of things in the very beginning. We didn't have the clue what you want to do with all these data. So whenever, I give an example, somebody asked us for brown socks, we didn't have brown socks. And eight years later, we have brown socks. So just could do a research and send and reply to the very same email he sent eight years before. Now we do have brown socks. We want to test them. This is things people are 
not used to. If they have a contact with customer service, it's usually a ticketing system and people just want to close their tickets. But then actually we don't want to close the contact with our customers. We don't want to build a relationship. And this idea behind, I think it's part of the DNA of the company that we want to have a high customer lifetime value. So therefore we need to invest in the relationship. And so we need to be personal. We need to have the data ready. We don't want to annoy everybody all the time with newsletters, but whenever we have to say something, we communicate it directly and this helped a lot. And for a long time, I didn't knew which customer nominated us. Nowadays, I know who it was, but I don't know why. I don't know exactly what happened with him, but I know that we invested a lot of time in special treatments of customers. I can give you another example. There was a person, he was at Boston Consulting Group. He was for Europe responsible for the e-commerce area. I didn't knew that he was responsible and he didn't like the socks. He sent them back and like five months later, we had a new model. So we sent him just one pair to test the new ones for free. Then he called me and said, I want to get to know you because that never happened to me, especially not in the e-commerce field and nowadays he's the boss of the uh, AmCham of American Chamber of Commerce and we still have a link together I think and he helped us afterwards to promote the company because he used it in all his presentations as an example and so on. He invited me a couple of times as a speaker and I think this is a very special greeting that you hardly find especially on the web. Speaking about when you're talking about the brown socks how did you remember to send an email eight years later did you like tag that email in one of your programs or how did you remember that? We tagged all the emails to come back with the same um, example, brown socks, brown socks, brown socks. So we had like on a yearly basis, for example, 50 people who wanted the brown socks. Whenever we had the brown socks, we could fill them out and easily send an email to all of them, a personalized email that now we have the brown socks and usually the board or sizes. I do know that the U.S. often the socks are sold one size fits all. We do have seven sizes and especially people with very big feet, they want big socks. And so... We launched this year all products up to XXL. Then we could also go through the former data and everybody who ever asked for bigger sizes for a special pair, he knew it afterwards. And I think that's crucial that you have the data ready. Hey guys, Rain Mahdi here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk and we were discussing the same thing, how to start a business with 500 bucks or less, the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use. All of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there. Just curious, just for tactical reasons. I mean, were you using Gmail or a certain email program when you were tagging these things? Or how did you, more specifically, just what program did you use? Actually, the tagging we do in our ERP. And nowadays we use MailChimp, but the MailChimp wasn't around 15 years ago. So therefore we haven't used it that time. So depending on the time, all the data on a different data layer, because if you change the system, then the data is gone. So we tag it on the ERP where we all have the customer data. We also calculate for every single customers on a weekly basis his socks index, you know, if he needs socks or not. And that helps us to decide whether we're going to send out the communication or not. Because I think a weekly newsletter for socks is annoying. 
think we all get enough newsletters, right? Exactly. <laughs> and you said ERP. What's an ERP? Enterprise resource system. That's uh, where all the transactions are going, all the customer data, all the historic data. That's basically the heart of the company. There we do also the purchasing planning. We see how much we sold, how much we haven't sold, what was on stock, how much sales we do in dollar, euros, Swiss francs, or English pounds. That's where everything's compared. A transactional system, basically. What was ERP back then and today? Because like I said, you were so early that it seems like that might have been difficult to find. Well, actually, very easy example. In 2000, I wanted to have credit card payment. In terms of infrastructure, we would have had to invest half a million dollars to be ready to do that. And nowadays, it's a free plugin which you load down. So it, a lot of things became much more standardized. But the core system which handles all the shipments and so on that we had to develop at that time, because since we were the very first with subscriptions, there was no software around which could handle subscription. Nowadays, a couple of them. It's easy. So we developed the whole system for the subscription by our own together with an external team and it's still up and running and we still invested in the system and it's very efficient and it's helped us a lot. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. For those who are listening, what advice do you have for them if they just started their own company or are thinking about it through your advice, what you've learned in running your own company? What tips or tricks or lessons do you have for them? I think there are two things. One is the most important thing about becoming an entrepreneur is start it. I saw so many people writing uh, presentations, business plans, everything, but they never really did it. And I think that's the most crucial part that you jump in the cold water and you start it. And the other thing is passion. I think if you have passion for what you're doing, then it's easy to work long hours. It's easy to think often on Friday afternoons. I think, oh no, I don't want that it's Friday afternoon. I want that it's Monday morning. I wanted to finish so many things during this week. And I think that's a good thing. That's passion. I like to do what I do. And I think if passions come in, then you will have better results than people which are just doing it for the money. Thank you again for coming on. If someone wants to say thank you or reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? On LinkedIn. My name is Sammy Richter. That's a hard one. Or I think probably the best is to contact me via the webpage, blacksocks.com. That's easy. Great. And like I said, we'll have that information in the show notes for him. So thank you again for coming on and sharing your story, Sammy. Thank you. If you think this episode could help inspire a friend or family member, then please pass it on. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might like Patreon episode number three where I talked with Rick Martinez about how to get funding and be successful in the cannabis industry, or try Patreon episode number five, where I talk with U.S. Army veteran Jeff Palmero about how he is able to grow a successful software business after fighting in Iraq. And last but not least, try Patreon episode number six, where I dive further in detail with Chad Patel on how to quickly build a successful mobile app without breaking the bank.